Hi everyone, my name is Drew Ray and you're listening to episode 18 of DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. This episode is about military fratricide accidents, also known as friendly fire, blue on blue, and the reason why your allies are sometimes scarier than your enemies. Friendly fire accidents are a prime example why system safety isn't just an activity for practice and peacetime. When warfighters can't trust their own weapons or their own allies, it puts a serious dent in their operational capability, and unless you're on the other side, that's generally considered a bad thing. There is a reason why Wikipedia has a page dedicated specifically for United States friendly fire incidents with British victims. It's actually not a long list, but the cultural and strategic impact makes it feel much longer. Blue on blue incidents lead to distrust, lack of communication, and lack of cooperation. Given that lack of communication and cooperation is often cited as a cause of friendly fire, you can probably already picture the cycle of unintentional violence that can spiral from one or two incidents. At a tactical level, friendly fire incidents occur for one of three reasons. Misidentifying a friendly unit as a valid target, firing it at a location other than intended, or a friendly unit moving into an area where indiscriminate firing is occurring. Since technology is increasingly being used to help identify targets, aim weapons and navigate, it's inevitable that technology will be complicit in a growing number of friendly fire accidents. In some respects, the role of technology in these accidents is similar to medical device failures. Accidents would occur at a higher rate even without the technology. It's just that the technology is not a perfect solution. This isn't an excuse not to make our equipment better though. In particular, when friendly fire accidents happen because electronic devices have unexpected failure modes, that's a sign that better safety analysis has an important role to play. In this episode, we're going to look at three friendly fire incidents. Apart from the use of technology and the nationality of the perpetrators, see if you can spot the common thread. For American listeners, I have to point out here that I'm not casting aspersions on your service people, honestly. In researching this episode, I ran into just as many accidents where UK, Australian and New Zealander forces held the weapons. And I think in any case, we need to consider both parties in a friendly fire incident as victims and as casualties. I've chosen these particular incidents because the political fallout increased the amount of available information. That's right. I'm picking on the Americans not because they're bad people, but because they make good case studies. Our first example today is known as the Black Hawk Shootdown Incident. It happened in 1994 during Operation Provide Comfort 2, when UN forces were enforcing a no-fly zone over northern Iraq. The purpose of the zone was to provide a safe space for Kurdish refugees and for civilian humanitarian aid programs. Operation Provide Comfort also included military security for the refugee camps and aid convoys. This means that as well as airborne command elements supervising the zone, and fighter jets enforcing the zone, there were ground units and helicopters moving around within the area. Coordination of all of these elements was complicated, because the helicopters were operating out of a different base and under a different command structure to the AWACS and fighter jets. Critically, the table of operations, a daily running sheet for the fighters, didn't include details about the helicopter flights. Similarly, the helicopter procedures didn't correctly reflect the use of friend or foe codes, IFF, within the no-fly zone. On April 14, 1944, two Black Hawk helicopters known as Eagle Flight 
were transporting members of the Provide Comfort leadership team. They were travelling between several sites under the no-fly zone. When they first entered the zone, they checked in with the AWACS, a radar and command aircraft which is used to spot targets and to coordinate the fighter packages. From that point onwards, their tracks on the AWACS radar screens should have been marked as friendly helicopters. As the helicopters moved through mountainous terrain, though, the tracks disappeared and reappeared. The friendly helicopter tags got separated from the radar tracks. The correct action for the airborne controllers to take at this point was to relink the friendly tags and the tracks. This didn't happen promptly, and so eventually the controllers were left with some dangling tags and no helicopters. They assumed that the helicopters had landed, and they removed the tags. Meanwhile, two F-15s called Tiger Flight were entering the no-fly zone. Their job was to sanitise the area, to make sure that it was clear of enemy aircraft before the daily patrols began. Their radios were incompatible with the Blackhawks, and they hadn't been briefed in on the Eagle flight plans for the day. The only way they were ever going to find out about friendly helicopters in the area is if the AWACS told them, and this wasn't standard practice. Tiger Flight, the F-15s, spotted two slow-moving, low-flying targets. They reported these targets to the AWACS, and then went to investigate. They didn't specifically ask the AWACS to try to identify the targets for them, but they should have. The AWACS controllers didn't try to identify the targets anyway, but they should have. Most critically, the AWACS controllers didn't put two and two together and at least warn Tiger Flight that there were friendly helicopters about and that they should be really, really careful about identifying any targets. Now, when you're an F-15 trying to identify a helicopter in a deep valley, you've got two choices. You can use the electronic IFF system, or you can have a look through your canopy while travelling 700 feet above the ground at 520 miles an hour. The rules said that the Tiger Flight was supposed to do both of these things, and they did. We don't really know why the IFF didn't work. Tiger Flight tried two modes of identification, called Mode 1 and Mode 4. Even though Eagle Flight was using the wrong Mode 1 code, if the Tiger Flight pilot did what he says he did, then he should still have got some response back. Eagle Flight was using the correct Mode 4 code though, so that should have worked in any case. Tiger Flight's IFF system was still working when they landed, and Eagle Flight's IFF system was working earlier in the flight. So we just don't know what went wrong with the technology here. As for the visual identification, there are conflicting ideas here too. The Blackhawks were carrying external fuel tanks, making them look a bit unfamiliar. The pilots weren't well trained in helicopter identification, and the photos they'd been shown to familiarise themselves were all taken from below, not above. Some sources I've read or talked to say that visual identification is very hard in these circumstances. Other sources say that this was a blinding mistake that just shouldn't have happened. The biggest complication in understanding the circumstances here is that it wasn't at all a blame-free investigation. Not only were individuals being punished and prosecuted afterwards, but the different service branches were blaming each other and protesting the innocence of their own people. If the pilots incorrectly identified the Blackhawks 
as Russian-made Heinz, this counted, according to the investigation, as an innocent mistake. If the pilots weren't sure of the identification, but they fired anyway, then they were breaking the rules of engagement and liable for serious punishment. Under those sort of circumstances, we're never going to get people being frank and honest about what they saw or thought they saw. End result, the Tiger Flight pilots saw two aircraft that they identified as Iraqi helicopters in an area where they had no knowledge of friendly helicopters. They shot down the aircraft. If you do any reading into this accident, you're going to run into a number of cultural issues that I'm not going to fully cover here. The F-15 pilots were accused of having a shoot-first mentality, in particular because all previous air-to-air kills in the conflict had been by F-16s. There were previous incidents of poor mission discipline to support this accusation, as well as the fact that there was no pressing need to shoot down the helicopters so quickly. The lack of coordination and information sharing, particularly between the fighter packages and the helicopter flights, was rooted in personality conflicts and inter-service rivalry, which you can trace as high in the chain of command as your political leanings take you. So really, there's no neat bottom line to finish on here. Technology, procedures, leadership, information, culture, even the lack of reliable evidence coming out of the investigation makes the whole thing just a mess. Staying with Iraq, let's move forward in time until 23rd of March 2003. A Royal Air Force Tornado GR4A was returning to Kuwait after a combat sortie, following the published procedures for route, speed and height, to land at Ali al-Salim Air Base. A Patriot anti-missile battery incorrectly determined that the tornado was in fact an anti-radiation missile, on course to destroy the Patriot battery. The communication suit for this Patriot battery was still en route from the United States. This means that they didn't have direct voice or data communication with their HQ, and so they had limited situational awareness and no opportunity to confirm their classification of the target. The lack of communication contributed to the fact that they didn't have Mode 1 IFF codes loaded, and so they couldn't use those to check if the aircraft was friendly. They did have Mode 4 codes, but the Tornado's Mode 4 IFF had failed silent. Not only was the Tornado not squawking a friendly code, but the Tornado crew didn't know that they weren't squawking. With a clearly labelled incoming missile and no IFF indication, the highly trained Patriot crew reacted quickly and shot down the Tornado. Here's the thing though. Tornado aircraft looked nothing like Iraqi anti-radiation missiles. Tornado aircraft, particularly when they're coming into land, fly nothing like Iraqi anti-radiation missiles. Why had the Patriot missile battery decided that the Tornado was a missile? In fact, too much data. This little bit missile battery, in the middle of the Kuwaiti desert, without even a phone line to its own HQ, knew too much. Its computer contained profiles for potential threats from all around the world, including some generic profiles for anti-radiation missiles, just in case the specific profiles weren't enough. Put enough different missile profiles into play, and one of them was going to come up with a match close enough to the tornado. In fact, 
The Patriot would have been much better if it was loaded only with profiles of Iraqi weapons. And that's eventually what ended up happening. I say eventually because two more accidents had to happen first. This was an equal opportunity weapon. A day later, a Patriot missile battery locked onto a US Air Force F-16. I've got this picture in my head of the F-16 pilot. You think I look like an anti-radiation missile? This isn't an anti-radiation missile, buddy. This is an anti-radiation missile. The pilot fired first and took out the radar on the Patriot battery. Fortunately, no one was injured in that particular accident. A week later, though, on 2nd of April, a Navy F-18 was destroyed and its pilot killed. Patriot batteries don't have the equivalent of aircraft black boxes, so it's unclear what role the IFF system played in the accident. The fundamental identification problem was the same, though. A friendly aircraft was labelled by multiple batteries as an incoming missile, due to overly broad classification rules. The third scenario for today comes from Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan on the 5th of December 2001. A 2,000-pound smart bomb dropped from a B-52 bomber, hit a command post, killing eight soldiers and narrowly missing Hamid Karzai, future leader of Afghanistan. The mistake seems to have been made on the ground, not by the bomber. Apparently the tactical air controller accidentally sent the bomber coordinates for his own position, the headquarters, instead of coordinates for the target position containing Taliban fighters. There were a few technical factors contributing to this mistake. The first is an issue of data formats. The air controller was originally preparing target data for a Navy FA-18 strike. This data was in minutes and seconds. The B-52, on the other hand, needed data in degree decimals, a different representation of the same location information. The second factor was that the GPS unit ran out of power mid-calculation, needing a change of batteries. When it restarted, it defaulted to displaying its own position rather than the last calculated position. The third issue is to do with data representation. Map coordinates, presented as latitude and longitude, aren't very intuitive. Coordinates representing your own location aren't qualitatively different from coordinates representing a position a mile away. They're both just strings of numbers. Put these factors together, and we have a multi-step calculation that can be interrupted in the middle, leaving you in an indeterminate state. There's no checking mechanism built into the task to let you know you've completed it properly, or that the answer is a valid one. We don't let children in infant school have calculators until they can have an intuitive grasp of the numbers and calculations involved, but we put a soldier in combat with a small window of opportunity for an airstrike to plug the numbers into a calculator and expect them to get it right every time. This was an accident caused years before it actually happened. When someone was specifying an $18,000 a pop joint direct attack munition, and they decided to use degree decimals instead of minutes and seconds, were they thinking about the Special Forces soldier on the ground, converting units from one format to another during combat, because the Navy and Air Force couldn't agree on a common standard? When someone was designing a lightweight GPS unit, did they evaluate the human interface to make sure it was obvious which set of coordinates it was displaying? 
When someone was designing the close air support communication procedures, did they consider the hazard of calling in your own coordinates by mistake and adjust the procedures accordingly? I don't know the answer to all of these, but I wish I was confident that someone in charge was asking the questions instead of calling this a human error. Incidentally, you might want to try doing an internet search sometime for safety-related information on the Precision Lightweight GPS Receiver. You'll find pages and pages of data on the dangers of putting the wrong type of battery into the receiver or putting the battery in backwards, but you'll find almost nothing on the danger of accidentally radioing your own location as a target to a B-52 bomber. I mentioned at the start of this episode that there was a common thread to all of these accidents. It's not really a fair question to ask if you spotted it, since there are actually a number of similarities ranging from subtle cognitive biases to the glaring fact that they all involve either firing at things or being fired at from aircraft. What I had in mind, though, was the role that data safety had to play in each case. In every analysis of the Black Hawk shootdown, the air tasking order, the communication with the AWACS, and the compatibility of the radios all have an important role to play. If the pilots of the F-15 had a procedural or technical way to know that friendly helicopters were present, the accident would not have happened. The Patriot missile accidents are an illustration of the difference between data and information. The missile batteries had an inability to turn data into good information, in turn caused by inappropriate classification data loaded into the system. The Afghanistan bombing was down to procedures using data. The process of collecting, transforming, checking and communicating data was just too complex and unreliable for the situation. When I first got involved in system safety about uh, 16 years ago, it was still fairly common for formal safety programs to totally neglect software faults or human errors as part of the analysis. Whilst I hope we've moved on from then, it seems that now we're getting up to the point where it's the turn of data to be the neglected poor cousin. The first step to data safety is simply recognising that almost all systems have data components, just as they have hardware, software, and human components. Data can get used to turn a generic piece of equipment into an application-specific product, like when an alarm or SCADA system is configured. Data can instead be right at the heart of a system, such as a patient record or a scientific database. We've got systems like satellite navigation, which passively consume data, and systems like smart reliability monitors, which actively create and transform data. As well as recognising that we've got data, we need to be clear on exactly what data is. Formally, data is a formatted representation of information about the world. This means that at the minimum, we're always dealing with a real-world thing, such as a location, and a particular way of describing that real-world thing, such as degree decimal coordinates. Additionally, any piece of data will have a number of other attributes, such as accuracy, resolution, integrity, traceability, timeliness, and completeness. So let's say I have, for example, a set of coordinates for friendly units. To make sense of that data, you need to know what format I'm using, how accurate you can trust the coordinates to be, how fine-grained the locations are, how much to trust the fact that I'm telling you that they're friendly, you need to know where the data came from, you need to know how long ago the coordinates were measured, 
and you need to know whether it's a list of just some friendly units or all friendly units in the area. As a general rule, all of these questions are valid and may be important for any piece of data. The second step in data safety is to understand how errors with the data may contribute to system hazards. There's no magic here, but you'd be surprised how often people implicitly or explicitly just assume perfect data when they're assessing risk. The third step is identifying and assessing the paths that data travels on. We often call these paths data chains to reflect the fact that any piece of data can pass through multiple systems and across multiple interfaces, right from its source to the point where it gets consumed. Every one of these links involves either transforming or copying the data, which introduces an opportunity for some of the attributes of that data, like the timeliness, the accuracy, the precision, to be damaged. Step four is to perform hazard analysis over these data chains. There are some quite good taxonomies of data faults that are very helpful here. For each link in the chain, you consider the causes and the consequences of different types of faults. For example, if we just focused on the timing aspects of data, we could have omission, that is, the data never arrives. We could have commission, an unexpected piece of data arrives. We could have early data, the data arrives too soon, or late data, the data is delayed. And we could have sequence errors, different pieces of data arriving in the wrong order. The final step is to design mitigations. We can do these in the form of requirements on the different systems handling the data, or we can do it by building mitigations into the format of the data itself. Putting requirements on the different systems is fine so long as we can influence the design of those systems. When we can't do that because the systems are designed and built by other people, sometimes we can still build in protection that lets us trust data even though it's travelled along an untrustworthy path. For example, putting sequence numbers into a data format provides protection against both missing data and out-of-order data, and things like digital signatures protect against spoofed data and corrupted data. The underlying point here is that there are dozens of different defensive data tactics and we just pick and choose which ones we need once we've identified what the data hazards are. So let's return to that example of the Patriot missile battery. The data we have here is a library of possible threats. Ultimately, there are two hazards with this data. We could fail to identify a threat, or we could incorrectly classify a non-threat as if it was a threat. The data could contribute to the first hazard by being incorrect, incomplete, overly precise, out of date, or by becoming corrupted. The data could contribute to the second threat by being incorrect, not precise enough, out of date, or again by becoming corrupted. We can imagine a data chain stretching back from a Patriot battery stationed in Kuwait, right back to a laboratory and test range in the United States where target profiles are determined and validated. Each step in that chain needs to maintain protection against the data contribution to the system hazards. Most of these protections will end up being easy and common sense, but they're only that easy once we understand what the data problems are that we're trying to mitigate. I have a couple of advertisements to finish this episode. The IET Safety and Cybersecurity Conference has just finished in Cardiff. I'll be having a look through the papers and I hope to give you some highlights in the next episode or two. There's a call for papers out now for the Australian equivalent, ASSC 2014. 
This is a conference which is very friendly and accessible for industrial delegates. There are always some thought-provoking talks, a great core of regular attendees, and good opportunities for networking. You can submit either a paper for peer review or an industrial experience talk. In either case, abstracts are due by 14th December, and the conference itself is at the end of May next year. You don't have to submit a paper to go to the conference, of course, but conferences are always more fun when you go as a speaker. I'll be giving a talk myself at the Phoenix Inn in York on October 28th, called Dealing Reasonably with Irrational Fear. It's a reflection on the different attitudes we have as a society to different types of risks, and whether it makes sense to try to treat equal-sized risks equally. And that's it for this episode. I've had some really thought-provoking emails from listeners after the last few episodes, and any correspondence or feedback is greatly appreciated. If you're listening to this shortly after release, the next episode will be out on 5th of November. <laughs>